11 FS, I'm David Breer and this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you RBS to pay $40 million for foreign exchange rigging, WeLab raises $156 million ahead of a virtual bank launch, and MasterCard launches mobile gift card ahead of Christmas. All this and much, much more on today's show. But before we get started, do you love Fintech? I mean, what are you doing listening to this if you don't? It would be just weird, quite frankly. So great news, though. We've actually relaunched the 11FS newsletter. So every Friday, you'll receive a summary of the biggest stories in your mailbox with the 11FS random style as it always comes along. Uh, If you want this straight to your mailbox and much, much more, then subscribe over on 11FS.com forward slash newsletter. All right, let's get on with the show. Welcome to episode 385 of Fintech Insider, our last new show of 2019. I'm David Breer, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Simon Taylor. How's it going, Simon? Not bad, considering last night was, in fact, the Christmas party. How are you doing, though? Not great. I'll be honest. I'm like, this is like, I'm having another beer to try and like, re-sort of join the dots, essentially. So, um, like, you know, keep talking while I have a second. Hair of the dog is is, is hopefully going to work for you. Pray for David, people. We will see. How about yourself? Yeah, no, actually not too bad. Uh, rounding off a, a great year. It's been an incredible year for us. Busy one. It has, it has. But a fun one, nonetheless. It is. I mean, like... Just when you thought everything was going to like die down for the Christmas period and like have a bit of a break, then no, uh, we've lots been crazy. of stuff to do. Yes, all the things. Indeed. All right. As always, we are not alone. We're joined by some super awesome guests making his fintech insider debut this week. We have Bradley Reese, who is the CCO of Checkout.com. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Is it Reese or is it Riss? You actually pronounced it perfectly, which is strange because it's not spelled that way. Uh, yep. I mean, mispronunciation is usually my thing, <laughs> right. so I miss pronunciated it correctly. Thank you for that. <laughs> Weird. All right. And Melky, making their uh, welcome return, we have Tom Blomfield, CEO of Monzo. How's it going, Tom? It's going great. Thank you. Back with like funner stories this time than last time. It was a bit more, uh, bit more drama-y, <laughs> but uh, we'll sort of come to that Lots later. Of financial crime last time, I remember. Uh, indeed. Well, there's, there's some of that, but it's other people this okay. week, so it's going to be much more jovial. Um, and also we have Louise Hill, who is the COO of Go Henry. How's it going? It's going very well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, my son, Josh, is coming into the office in about half an hour, who is a user of your product. So uh, he'll, uh, he'll he's, very, he's very happy with his card. <laughs> Loves it a lot. All right, let's get started with the show. So first up, we have a story over on The Guardian, which is RBS to pay 40 million penalty for foreign exchange rigging. Um, so it's believed they have earned tens of millions of pounds in extra profit by manipulating exchange rates, which is... I mean, manipulating, never a good word in a headline to be uh, sort of tied to, really, is it? Uh, A group of less than 10 employees carried out the rigging between 2010 and 2014, and all of them have since actually left the bank. Uh, It's said that 730,000 customers will receive compensation as part of this, uh, and it's believed that it's the first case of foreign exchange rigging of this kind among UK banks. I imagine not to be the last what do you think is going on here? I mean, every time RBS seem to get the other side of a big fine, there seems to be another big fine kind of waiting for them of some instance, right? Is this ever going to sort of subside or is it just, you know, are the bones going to be continually being dug up somewhere? It, it certainly feels that way. I mean, this comes on the back, of course, the uh, the competition remedies package that they had post Williams and Glynn, which was massive and, and, and kind of really took up, was the big story, I think, of, of 2019. Uh, and then everything that happened with PPI, um, which, of course, they posted an operating loss of £8 million last quarter after being forced to put aside 
another 900 million to cover the surge of PPI complaints. I mean, it puts them in a strange place. But um, what do we think about the um, kind of uh, big banks involvement post financial crisis? Will this ever end? Uh, What do you think, Brandley? To be honest, <laughs> it's hard to say. Uh, I think that this is an old story if we actually look at when the data came from it. So my hope is that as there hasn't been too much of recent events, we're not going to see any more of these stories surface. Uh, banks, is there a lack of governance, perhaps? Uh, you'd like to think that in these sort of areas, especially when it comes down to something which is a very corporate banking initiative, there would be higher standards in place. And the fact that it took this long for it to be uncovered and was only uncovered in some ways by accident while they're investigating a previous problem, uh, it wonders what else will come out just because of that. Mm, every stone unturned, essentially. But uh, I mean, it is going to be interesting to see because you, you sort of think, again, 10 employees were sort of implicated in in the, the sort of action here. But like you say, there's, there's a lot more people with probably a lot more, we sort of covered a few times this year, stories of people being able to take reasonably significant amount of customer data home with them and then having complete inability to actually sort of give it back. So I honestly think these things are going to run and run for big organizations. Is, um, and, I, and I actually feel quite sorry for you know somebody like Allison coming in to take over charge of the, the organization with a, a very different mindset than I would have said some of the sort of predecessors in that space. Um, but whether her time is going to be marred from past times is going to be really interesting to see. What do you guys think? I think it's, it's it's really a matter of trust, isn't it? And and I guess the question for me is, does anybody trust banks anymore? And and there have been some uh, great new new banks coming to the market with much cleaner, clearly because they're new records, new ways of doing things, and that that's fantastic. But some of the old incumbents, every time we lift the hood, it seems to be that there's another scandal uncovered. Mm. You know, I, I was driving to the station to to come up here today and uh, listening to Radio Four, and they were talking about the um, packaged account scandal, and just how much Lloyd's. Um, how many accounts Lloyds has now been um, accused of uh, mis-selling and not even selling, but just signing people up for without them even knowing. And people have been paying for them for years. Hmm. There's just one after the other. Yeah, I think there's a whole uh, sort of mechanized process around PPI that is looking for the next sort of multi-billion pound opportunity to sort of uncover these things, isn't it? So whether it's packaged accounts or, uh, you know, theoretical mis-selling from an investment banking perspective or from a private banking perspective, it's it's going to, I think, run and run and run while there's a potential opportunity. I mean, I, I guess a lot of this, Tom, comes down to incentives, though. You know, if these 10 people were incentivized incorrectly to manipulate the system for the gains... Um, I mean, how not wanting to put you on the spot, but I'm going to because you've been here a few <laughs> times now and I'm always very friendly, but let's make this the time, you know. Sure. But actually, so what do you guys do to, I guess, stop this kind of bad incentives leading into the the sort of culture of the company? I think it's, as you say, incentives and culture. Um, so I think you have to be really careful um, about the kinds of especially short-term financial incentives you put in place because it, people will, in the best meaning, people will... Um, will run towards a metric. And even without an incentive, um, being careful about what metrics you measure people by because they will um, they'll almost blindly follow that. I worked, as a, before I got into financial services, I w- worked in a, um, in a consulting firm. Um, and we went to a very, very big call center. I won't name who, who was running the call center. But it was just as people were moving to... Um, Email. This is sort of 10, 15 years ago. 
And um, we went to the call center and, and talked about their metrics, their SLAs. And the call center manager very, very proudly said, we have a target that 90% of our emails get, get answered in 24 hours. I'm like, brilliant. How, you know, how are you doing against it? 89, 90, 91% normally. It's, it's great. And then we asked, what about the other 10%? How, long, how quickly does it take you to, to reply to them? And he sort of looked strangely and said, well, we've not got a, not got a target against that. So we just don't reply. <laughs> oh, wow. So they get to 90% and just stop. Yeah, That's great. We've hit our target. And so, yeah, humans wow. are weird when you put sort of arbitrary. You have to figure out how you're, um, how you're rewarding and incentivizing people. Yeah, and the, I mean, the, and then the gaming of the system around those things is just bizarre, isn't it? But and and I think most of this comes comes down to as uh, we big organisations can get lambasted consistently, but these are people. You know, people make companies, and actually, the culture of the company is a thing that continually is being re- reinforced. There's been a sort of short termism over long term brand and uh, real sort of benefit to the to the businesses and, and actually to the you know the the community the, the the sort of people of the country for a long time and that seems to have changed I mean we've seen it with Wells Fargo with the bizarre sort of making up of mortgages or dead people buying credit cards the, yeah. there's, it's sort of run and run so it's it, it is a um, you know if your culture doesn't censor check itself, then I think you're always going to kind of bump into these things. Yeah, and I do think the culture has changed since the financial crisis, actually. I think uh, even before Alison, I think Ross at, at RBS really, really was high integrity and in trying to do the right thing, which I'm not sure was true of all of his predecessors there. Um, so, I, But I, th- I think if you have an organization that's many tens of thousands of people, to permeate that culture change all the way down through the organization takes potentially decades sometimes. It can take a long time. The one, um, I think, interesting silver lining here to, to balance the story a little bit is um, the 730,000 customers that will receive compensation. Uh, that scheme was launched voluntarily without any orders from from anywhere, which I actually think is a nice touch. Um, and then they, of course, notified the uh, regulators afterwards. So, you know, maybe somebody spotted it before and pointed it out, but still, like, to, to be a little bit proactive is at least a, a positive sign. Mm. I guess not trying to hide it and, you know, yeah. it's like a bad thing sort of amnesty like yeah. they're, uh, <laughs> a little they're handing in the fines ahead of time indeed like and, and you tend to find as, as a result the regulators look kindly on that sort of behavior right and actually um i, I really like tom's point about uh if you create the game people tend to try and play that game rather than if you focus on outcomes for customers it's it's a very different mindset okay yeah. but that's where the regulations actually did change after the gfc so there were changes put in place whereby banking commissions were capped on an individual level. And I think that was the intention was to stop things like this arising. So whether this is a hangover from that or whether this is still a problem that manifests, uh, I guess that's probably the main question on behavior. Mm, I agree. Okay. And next up, we have a story on Finextra, which is WeLab raises $156 million ahead of virtual banking launch. So the mobile lender is preparing to enter Hong Kong's retail banking market in 2020. It will use AI, machine learning, and big data. I mean... What happened to blockchain? They've yeah. got blockchain. <laughs> is this how they raised all of the money? <laughs> yeah. um, so they're, I mean, they've listed all of the all of the sort of buzzwords on a Gartner matrix of some description. The funding will be used to expand the company's B two B partners uh, to over a thousand and into another Southeast Asian market beyond Indonesia within the next two years, which is a pretty aggressive expansion there. So previous investors have been people like Alibaba and um, various other groups of people backing. In into their Series C round. So before we sort of get into this one, we managed to speak to Simon Long, who is the founder and group CEO of WeLab. 
Hi, we're very excited that we've raised 156 million of Series C strategic financing, completing the largest fintech fundraising in Greater China this year. Since our first fundraising in our Series C round in 2015, the total amount raised to date has exceeded 400 million US. The Series C financing will be used to develop, further develop and broaden our platform as a fintech enabler. In 2020, WeLab has three targets, more tech, more business units and more markets. We aim to launch WeLab Bank in Hong Kong in 2020, further expand China's B2B enterprise business, and offer our proprietary privacy computing solutions to enterprise on the cloud platform in the second half of 2020. We also aim to enter into another Southeast Asia market beyond Indonesia in the next two markets. While we're marching into 2020, we think that year 2020 marks the inflection point for FinTech, where the calls for supervision, governance are necessary, starting with regulated digital banks around the world. We think that consumer privacy, especially in the area of uh, privacy of data, will be a major area for banks. That's what we'll be investing heavily in the technology. Speaking of the 11FS is a really special moment to me, and uh, it has also played a part in WeLab's journeys in obtaining the virtual banking license in Hong Kong. Wait and see how the WeLab bank goes extra mile. Just like Fast-growing challenger bank in Monzo in the UK, challenging traditional banks with 40,000 people and opening a Monzo bank account every week. Thanks very much, Simon. Uh, what do you guys think about this one? I mean, Hong Kong's in a bit of a funny place right now, right? I think um, obviously all the changes that we've seen from a regulatory perspective and virtual licenses and everything that's kind of coming through is, is great, you know, emulating a lot of the stuff that has happened here. But it doesn't seem like many weeks go by without some sort of political unrest. So it seems like quite sort of precarious times for doing anything, I would say, in Hong Kong. Yeah, it's, a, it's a massive market, though, if, uh, when you think outside of Hong Kong. They're not just operating in mainland China. They're in Indonesia as well. Indonesia is a population you know, well over 200 million people. Um, and there's you know, people uh, with real financial difficulty. Uh, and the thing that WeLab had done successfully in the past was uh, they'd been able to solve for um, lending to micro-enterprises at, at relatively low risk and re- relatively low defaults. Now, maybe that was the cycle. And you know there has been a lot of um, challenges with peer-to-peer lenders and other people lending to micro-enterprises that came out in the wash later in China. Um, but that said, they seem to have been uh, been able to use technology to identify pockets of risk that were addressable. So I think it's particularly interesting. There's lots of markets where this is solving problems, but I think there's. Uh, it's not just a Hong Kong story. It's a mainland China, uh, it's an Indonesia, and it's a Southeast Asia story, which is getting really competitive with the likes of Grab and jo- Gojek in there, all trying to go after that sort of micro uh, business and micro consumer kind of lending market, which is which is really exciting because uh, you know there's there's real problems to solve out there. Mm. What about you guys? You're opening up in Hong Kong anytime soon, or uh, you know. Not next week. That's no, for sure. Anytime soon. No. It mirrors what's happening in Singapore as well. I think that they've announced they're going to be granting two or three new digital banking licenses, which I think is positive. But the um, we took a very brief look, and I mean, the capital requirements there are in the in the billions. So I think the saying it's similar to the UK is superficially true. Um, you can launch a bank here with 20, 30, 40 million of capital. In Singapore, you add a, a couple more zeros. And does anybody know the difference between the virtual banking licenses there and the full banking license here? Did, because I think the approach here, not not just in capital controls, but was to get you to being a, a full bank, right, versus sort of this other thing that says you have to be digital only. 
But bizarrely, uh, bizarrely, the full thing, but with zero branches. Yeah. So the the idea is like you can't have a branch by being one of these to perversely create that differentiation in the product mm. and the service offering, which feels like a weird. You know, you're forced to sort of go down a certain route for a certain target audience with a certain users, especially given you're talking about micro SMEs where cash is still such a massive thing in Hong Kong. So, I mean, it, it is it is interesting, but it's I think it's how they've created differentiation from the target audience, but also the types of people that you're going to be really able to serve. Louise, what do you think about those markets as well from a Go Henry perspective? You guys have uh, gone after a niche market, but you know, really kind of cornered it and done done really well in it. Um, do you think that uh, the, there's opportunities outside of Europe for for that type of product as well? I think there very much are, and 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 actually we've we've looked at Singapore mm-hmm. in particular. Um, it's not on our immediate roadmap. Mm-hmm. There there are other places that have better fit and and more immediate. Um, access, I, I guess, than uh, than Singapore and, and Indonesia and, and South Asia. But uh, yeah, it's pocket money, kids learning about money. It's, it's a global thing. There are very few countries when you start to look that don't do that and need that. Bradley, there was a lot of buzzwords in the in the sort of uh, the opening there. But do you think there is something to be said for uh, using sort of uh, data better to identify different pockets of risk and think about risk differently? That that we can learn from looking at markets like this. I, I'm sure there is, but for me, the the interesting part of this story was actually if you look at the wider context, because the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, this is not the first license they've granted this year. I mean, I think we're almost at double digits at this point. Um, and Alibaba as a backer, it's also juxtaposed to, and financial being a backer of another one of the banks which went into beta this week, ZA, which is Zhongang. So that Zhongang like the first company in China, probably worldwide, to have a mass blockchain effort on the lending space. Mm-hmm. So it's it's quite interesting when you think that you have Alibaba backing one player and financial backing another, and of course. Really, you could argue that the main competitor for both of these is Alipay itself. Yeah. So either they're trying to corner the market with some sort of triangulation strategy, uh, or it's a hedging bets. But, and of course, um, Tencent got a license as well, I believe. So there's uh, there's the real pl- uh, play out there of the the different giants in in the market. Yeah, and you can move that over the Tencent or the WeChat Pay. Mm-hmm. Go into Indonesia. You already mentioned Grab. I think that these guys are offering more than financial services, and it's a struggle that I think a lot of banking apps will have in these markets is that. It's not about banking. It's about so much more. It's about providing them with a marketplace where you can actually use the cash that you're storing. Indeed. And so you have to ask what these digital digital banks are bringing, other than interest on your current account, uh, that's actually going to compel users to go from a marketplace they're already comfortable with. Mm. I think the most most comparable thing to sort of what we're seeing here is like customers finally getting like choice. You know, this like a deluge of new products and services that are going to be coming to the market in, in Hong Kong and, and much broader in that region. So it's going to be really interesting to see how the the incumbent players sort of react to it. Uh, I mean, Standard Charter were one of the people getting virtual banking licenses over there as well, which we did some work with on that space. I forget how much stuff we've done in Asia this year. It's been... Yeah. Uh, and Grab who launched their MasterCard. Genuinely, the first six months <laughs> was a blur of this year. So, uh, it really was. But, um, but it, is, um, it is amazing that, uh, you know, albeit slightly different approach from the regulator's perspective, that the outcome will be very similar, which is just probably better outcomes and better choice for consumers. All right. 
on that note, there is a, another story over on AltFi. So this is Oak sees first loan defaults, which I'll be honest, if you sort of read the headline, the headline was essentially in caps, which was uh, somewhat alarmist. Uh, so the two defaults, so it's literally two defaults, uh, less than 1% of the bank's 3 billion net lending uh, and have not led to credit losses, uh, according to the Sunday Times, which was quite at odds to the actual, uh, the actual headline. So these are the first of Oak North's loans to actually default. I know Rishi's, when he's sort of talked a lot before about how they've gone about things, there's been, uh, I think, a lot of emphasis sort of placed on the fact that there hasn't been any defaults to date. Um, But it seems sort of quite an alarmist headline here. What what do you guys kind of think on this one? I've seen a lot of sort of reaction on Twitter where people are basically sort of rewriting the headline to be, um, you know, some people don't pay back loans like shock. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was a weird thing for Oak North to be saying in the first place, honestly. Like, it, it, it's not going to be the, the fact they have no have had no defaults. It is it is very, very unusual. It's, it's not going to be true forever. So they're sort of walking into that one. Um, the the difference here, I guess, is that, that um, a couple of defaults is 1% of the lending book, which points to how concentrated these loans are. You know, a, a default is in the tens of millions of pounds now, not consumer lending might be a a few hundred or a few thousand, and so I think the tide can turn very, very quickly if um, if the economy turns. But it is normal. You lend money, you 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 pay an interest rate because you or you charge an interest rate because you don't expect to get it all back. Mm. Yeah, I mean, by by you know, loans are managing risk. That's what it is. So you would expect this. But I think it's an interesting point, like you say, that it's uh, at one percent, such a, a significant number on that. But um, I wonder if it's uh, even potentially even just sort of maturity in the book in terms of where they're going. You know, those loans are by nature probably a little bit longer term given the size of where they're at. Therefore, the back end of those loans might be slightly more risky than the front end of those loans. So it's it's interesting space. But I kind of feel it's sort of, I mean, Tom, you're in recently sort of talking to us, but it, it plays a little bit about the, I think, a bit of a backlash against fintech to a certain degree. It feels a little bit like, I think, um, you know, uh, fintech's been the, the sort of darling of everybody for the last like three years. And now actually it feels a little bit like, uh, I mean, we had Val in this week uh, on uh, another show, but it kind of feels a little bit like it's a um, get Back in your place now? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I think you can sort of overblow that. Really, it's. I think the the press has a, a way of putting a, a pretty negative spin on a lot of stuff, not just fintech mm. and, and negative news sells, right? And, and gets subscribers, so we, we shouldn't forget that. But I think uh, what interests me is Oak North came along uh, at a time when there was a funding gap for small businesses, um, and we've been in an, an economy, as you say, that's been sort of growing and doing pretty well for five to ten years. Um, did that funding gap exist for a reason, um, or or was it uh, sort of you know, was it always too risky, or have they? found this pocket of risk in a different way of pricing it? Have they done something genuinely new? I don't know if Bradley, Louise, you have perspectives on that. I think that certainly when they came to market, it it was a a new thing and they were targeting a a market that had potentially been underserved before. Um, I guess the question is, is that market still underserved today? My feeling would be probably yes, because I certainly don't hear that uh, the mainstream banks are, are lending to um, the type of clients that, that Oak North has. And and, and I, I do have to say, I think it is probably a little bit of, hey, great, here's uh, one of the new guys, let's let's poke at them. But uh, as, as Bradley said, you know, 
the press uh, do like negative stories. That's what makes good headlines. Good old Tom. Sorry, it was Tom. No <laughs> worries. I'll take credit for it. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Just take credit for everything Tom's done. Then <laughs> <laughs> I'll be a lot happier than I am today. <laughs> um, yeah, like I think that this probably wouldn't be a headline if they hadn't repeated themselves so many times that they've never had a default. I think that is the the big catch here. And yes, the negative press comment can reiterate that. But it's been said already. I mean, you're in this business because you don't expect to have a 100% record. And if you are, you're probably not running it in the optimal way. I think the real question is, did they identify an underserved market segment? But is that defensible? They always talk a lot about their ability to use data to make better decisions. Um, I really don't know enough about the business to know how true that is. And I think until they get some proper competition, maybe from less legacy players, to say it politely. Uh, it's going to be hard to say whether they actually have something that's long-term and differentiated. One of the things I hear from from, from bankers quite a bit when sort of um, suggesting that fintech is flash in the pan or something like that is that, oh, well, none of these challenges are profitable. Sorry, Tom. That's something you must hear that all the time. <laughs> yet. Um, but yet, yet. Uh, indeed. Right. I, and, you know, caveating. Um, and and uh, you know, payback cycles of VCs and all that. But Oak North were always the one that were out there saying, well, we're profitable already. Um, and and I guess uh, you know is 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 it a surprise that that hadn't been picked up and that they hadn't gone with that angle and and do we think that uh, you know, that especially given where SoftBank who's now in their cap table in a big way has been for some time they might be under more pressure to be um, producing profits given what's happened with WeWork given what's happening with some of, some of their other investments. Hmm. No, I don't think SoftBank are, pr- are pressing on profits anytime soon. Honestly, they're, <laughs> they're still in takeover of the world mode. Um, but it, with a lending business, it's, you have to see the, the sort of return profile through the cycle. So Oak North, like us, like any lender, will have provisioned a lot. And it's just a question of whether the, whether your, the provisions that you've uh, have accrued are sufficient to, to meet all of the cost of default. So, you know, over the kind of term of the loan. So it's very, very straightforward to say in, in principle, but in practice, that's really, really tricky. Indeed. All right. From one headline that was uh, sort of rather interestingly put to another one. Uh, So incumbents and challenger banks hike over overdraft rates. So this is a story over on which. So uh, last Tuesday, HSBC First Direct M&S Bank announced they will be raising overdraft fees to 39.9%. Uh, to 39.9% rather, from March 2020 onwards. Uh, A week later, Monzo Starling uh, and a few others announced that they would be following suit with increases of their own. Uh, Starting from on the 1st of April, interesting timing, April Fool's Day there, Tom. Mm. Uh, Monzo will follow a tiered system that will be charging uh, customers 19, 29 or 39% EAR, depending on the credit rating. Uh, it'll also be removing its free £20 overdraft buffer. Um, is this anything other than banks do what the FCA said that they should do? Or is it something other than that? I think there are two parts of this, which is the, the move to a simple interest rate is FCA mandated. So that's one thing that is happening. The second though, is that many banks feel like their fee revenue will be under threat because of especially the unauthorized, the ban on unauthorized fees. And therefore, in re- to try to recoup some of the losses, they are therefore hiking their rates. Mm. Um, we, for, uh, Monzo, I can't speak for other banks, but Monzo in particular, we'd expect this to be um, revenue neutral, actually slightly loss-making for us, which means customers in general are better off. So 85% of our customers will pay less or within one pound either way of what they paid before. 
in general, with other banks, I think removing the unauthorized penalty in general is good for society because it means the poorest amongst us pay, pay less. It previously, uh, mainstream folks were, were getting a cheap rate and the poorest, most vulnerable were subsidizing the rest of us. And the FCA wanted to stop that, and they did. But as a result, the mainstream now pay more, which from a societal point of view, I think is actually very, very reasonable. Um, There's a separate, a slightly separate point, which is, I mean, at, at Monzo, we didn't have unauthorized overdraft fees, and we thought long and hard about whether we wanted a percentage rate or a, we, we previously charged 50p a day. And overwhelmingly, our customers preferred a fixed fee because they could understand it better. And so now they're paying basically the same. Basically, for us, people are paying, broadly speaking, the same amount, but they don't understand it now, mm. whereas before they did understand it. And that is quite frustrating. When a regulator steps in to prescribe exactly how you must charge for a product, you, they end up calcifying, sort of um, locking in concrete the way a system works. They prevent innovation. If you came and said, how about, we've got this innovative new way we want to try and charge and we think actually it's going to be better for understanding or better for whatever, the regulator says, well, no, thank you. We've, it, we've written in regulation how you must charge. It prevents competition and innovation, which fundamentally I think is a bad thing. Mm. So I think their hearts were in a, sort of the right place. They were trying to protect vulnerable customers. But I think they went, um, they went too far and there were some unintended consequences in this case. Yeah, I think, as you say, the, the fundamental here is like not everybody in the world understands how percentages work. Therefore, actually being in a situation where you're you're sort of inflicting some mental maths on somebody rather than an amount that they could very clearly understand, uh, that seems like a very strange thing. I mean, there's been a few of these that have been a bit sort of a misstep from a regulatory perspective. What was the other one where essentially there was the idea to slow down payments to try and counterbalance fraud elements, which is like... Mm. not really the answer from it. You could see where they're coming from, which is if we put some, you know, four days of friction in the payment process that it might slow that down. Uh, yeah. But it's like it's like <laughs> the idea was nice, but the execution was weird. Yeah, on, ban online banking so that you can't be susceptible to online <laughs> yeah, fraud anymore. Just shut down the internet next to it. It would be um, yeah. far easier for everybody. But, it, I mean, does this say, again, though, it, it sort of feels like sort of forcing all of the organizations sort of into line you know, this, is it a, a, like a standardization because they feel that uh, actually this is what you should be able to kind of make from these things? Because I, I think you've actually haven't you released some additional functionality to sort of counter some of these things in terms of some of the push notifications capability as well. Which was also regulated, actually. Mm-hmm. Was it? That was, so that yeah. was part of the regulation. I mean, that's going to be really interesting because, I mean, push notifications have been such a ball ache for big organizations yeah. to actually implement. So, um, you know, that's probably going to be more of a pain in the ass for them and cost them more money than actually just changing the the, the figure. And I have to say, I bank with First Direct <clears throat> and uh, they quite clearly turned on all of their push notifications three weeks ago. And hey, it's Christmas. I've gone into my approved overdraft. Mm-hmm. And um, every single day they are sending me a, hey, <laughs> yeah. And I don't know about anybody else, but I'm getting so angry with it. I'm like, where's the stop button? Push notification blindness. And I think to Tom's point, this is uh, extremely well-intentioned. But uh, as I sit here as a, you know, thinking with a customer hound, I'm extremely frustrated by it. Um, and as somebody who cares about fintech and the customer, I'm extremely frustrated by what is well-intentioned, but has been done uh, by people who live and work in finance all day and every day, rather than by you know, speaking to customers and looking in the whites of their eyes. And actually, um, regulation that's formed 
informed purely by you know well-intentioned and then committees and going away and thinking about it rather than having customers baked into that and having the data shape that a little bit and the experience of working with customers shape that a little bit um, could could create much better outcomes and ultimately um, I believe what the FCA is there to do is to create better outcomes for the consumer yeah. um, my fear is this has had the exact opposite effect in many cases and the optics of it as it plays out in the press make it look even worse um, and so it, it's one of those things where I can't believe that they were so naive to think that this couldn't be twisted to, to appear negative I'm, sh- I'm assuming they were aware of that um, but I do believe they were naive in assuming that just by pushing for rates everybody would feel that was fair and transparent um, it's been, I think it's been a fairly well-established fact for some time that consumers, most consumers don't understand percentages, but they really understand flat fees. Mm. Yeah, I mean, look, again, I, I think we can't forget the unauthorized overdraft fees and the protection of the most vulnerable and poorest in society. That is overwhelmingly a good thing. But I, I mean, I agree on the percentage rate. And I think that it would... If the regulator, the regulator absolutely wants to achieve better outcomes. And so moving to outcome-based regulation rather than being prescriptive about the inputs seems like a much better idea. For example, rather than saying you must charge in exactly this way, you, you set out a bunch of principles and agree in a year or two how you're going to go and measure the outcomes. So, you know, 90% of customers have to understand how they're being charged. However you charge for it, we don't care, but we're going to just run a survey. Mm-hmm. And 90% of people have to say they understand it. Or, for example, the poorest may not pay more than the median. Another outcome that we will measure in pounds and pence, and you figure out how you achieve that, we don't care. So I don't, it's, I don't, know, I don't know, Tom, like, based on your earlier example, that means the 10% they just won't care about, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, maybe like 10% could be really confused. Yeah. And it's like, net my 90%, you know? So. And in theory, in the UK, we do have a principles-based regulation system, right? But where we get prescriptive, that we, we have problems. And I think this feels very against the, the, the kind of the modus operandi of the FCA. I agree. Mm. All right. On that note, let's take a break. Today... Customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. Um, Next story we have is over on the Wall Street Journal. It's a story from um, Venmo and PNC feud over glitch. So PNC clients are having trouble connecting their bank accounts to Venmo, uh, with both sides actually sort of coming out openly and blaming each other, which is always nice in the public. Uh, The problem started when PNC upgraded its security systems. This prevented Plaid uh, from collecting customers' account and routing numbers effectively disconnecting Venmo. So when customers raise the issue on Twitter, which customers do, just shout about stuff on social media, why not? Uh, PNC told them to use Zelle, a Venmo competitor instead, uh, which operates with other banks. Venmo then rallied its users to tweet complaints. I mean, is this just two fintechs bitching at each other on, uh, on well, Twitter? Well, PNC's 
a bank, I wouldn't classify <laughs> them as a fintech. I mean, well-intentioned. Would, would they classify themselves a fintech? Yeah, but I think, though, it's one of those things where, like, your grandma at a rave still classifies herself at the rave, you know. It's, That's true. I mean, it's a, or your granddad. It's a an interesting, uh, interesting sort of setup on this one, though. Is that like is this um, somebody basically cutting off connection mm. because they feel like basically functionality is leaking out to another partner? I think that's what it appears like. It's hard to say anything else. I mean, of course, PNC did say um, they blocked Plaid specifically rather than just Venmo. So this is Plaid who uh, allow you um, access uh, through uh, open banking APIs or, or sometimes hostile integration. In other words, they take your username and password and log in directly to the website on your behalf and screen scrape. Um, after apparently that uh, circumvented its security protocol, which... Sure, but screen scraping's been around for a long time. Why suddenly this issue around payments and, and that's where the issue's been? Mm. And the the thing that they were saying was basically circumnavigating it was basically the auto-population of account numbers, mm-hmm. which is sort of strange. It's a strange thing to get annoyed about and cut people off for. But, I mean, it's going to be interesting. I, like, I just like to see a bunch of people bitching at each other on Twitter. I mean, as what an aside, I, I think Plaid has a great business. And mm. They are selling... selling um, Shovels and 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 equipment during the gold rush, yeah, and it's uh, just a phenomenal business. I mean, and and very effectively, you know, mm. there are many other companies that are selling a very similar service, but they seem to have really hit the sweet spot of having a product and actually being able to get people to pay for it. Which is, yeah. you know, there's many organisations that have very good tech, but uh, you know, forget people have to buy it. Cloud have great coverage, yeah. Yeah, B2B fintech is great. You guys should try it out. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's fun when things go social. Uh, and of course, maybe it was a plaid issue at the core, but of course that's not the brand which is is seeing the most attention out of this. I think it's kind of the power of the consumer nowadays. Uh, quite it some is. time ago, we moved from a, a supply-based economy across almost every industry to a demand-based one. So I think when we look at what the ramifications of this will be, it really comes down to consumer power. Zell's not going to get a good name out of this. I think I think it's in, it's interesting to see a social media team's power. You know, if you kind of look at uh, any sort of um, untoward sort of comment from a to a big big organization right now, it's very politely handled and moved into a backroom DM to kind of have a very controlled kind of conversation about it. But to see organizations just go in, Do you know what, screw it, let's uh, you know gloves are off, let's have a let's have a fight, then um, it just seems like an interesting way of sort of resolving it, isn't it? I wonder if consumers will force them back the other way around on this. I mean, we've not seen any updates since this story came out, but you know, the, the consumer demand, as you say, Bradley, is, is an interesting part of this. And uh, you know, kind of uh, being forced to use Zelle as the only option, um, you know, it's quite uh, – so Sam Moore, our North America partner, always talks about how you know, Zelle is the thing your parents use, but uh, the, the kids use Venmo, but more often than not now, actually, the users haven't been growing for Venmo. It's Square Cash. Um, which is which has uh, much deeper integrations and hooks into um, the financial services system. Um, so that might be uh, might be how peer to peer plays out in the US. Indeed. All right. The next story we have is over on Finextra. This is Vault's onboarding process begins. So the Australian Neobank launches in 2020, but it's already started onboarding some of the 40,000 customers that it has on its wait list. They've also unveiled a 2.5% and a 2.15% interest rate with no introductory period or conditions. 
No conditions. Interesting. Uh, the company will solicit feedback through its uh, Vault Labs app ahead of its launch. Um, but it's, I mean, it's interesting to start seeing the Australian market like really, really open up. Mm. You know, for such a long period of time, very few big organizations really sort of protecting everything. Um, but actually, like, now we're starting to see a, a whole swathe of new organizations come to market. Yeah, it, it, what's uh, interesting about this is because they were the first to get an unrestricted deposit-taking license from the Australian PRA. Uh, that reminds me of when we first saw, I think, Sterling, Monzo, and, and Tandem start to get to full banking license rather than with the restrictions. That felt like a, a real moment in time when you can now take full deposits from the broader consumer base and those restrictions are gone. And it feels like... Uh, uh, then it just becomes about who can build and execute. Um, so it's going to be one to watch. I mean, mm. what are your thoughts, Tom, as you reflect on having been through the process, lessons learned in the process? What, what do you think of things like this? I mean, it's interesting to see the Australian market developing. I think the it's been a little slower because the big Australian banks came through the financial crisis, if not unscathed, certainly less less scathed than um, than banks in other in other countries. So I think they were able to really invest in systems and technology um, over the last 10 years in a way that you know most banks weren't able to. And so it's probably the, they are a little further ahead. And so the, the delta, the gap that the fintechs are closing is um, smaller, probably. Um, but I think on a global level, I, I think this digital banking thing is, is here to, not just here to stay, but the, going to be the new normal. I think in over the next five or 10 years, that everyone in the world is going to be using a digital bank. I, I genuinely don't think the cost base, the legacy technology, and the the cultural problems of the the big legacy banks is, is going to enable them to survive. Really, mm. so it's. I think we'll be talking about this story for the next five years, and country, as country by country goes through this this transition. Mm. I mean, the the Australian banks definitely came out of 08 better. But in the last like two years, I mean, literally headline after headline, the Royal Commission, the – was it Westpac who literally had a, a server fall off the back of a lorry with customer <laughs> data? You know, so there's, there's been a, um, a sustained period of like negativity towards like the, the top tier banks over there. Yeah, there was a big money laundering thing, wasn't there, where the, the cash deposit machines weren't, make, weren't doing the money laundering checks and, and drug gangs were basically yeah. using them to launder the hundreds of millions of dollars of yeah. – of, of drug proceeds and the CEO lost a job as as part of it. So yeah. it's a it's a it is an amazingly changing market down there. And actually, with you know, was it eighty six four hundred and Zinger and these guys and up, you know, there's just an amazing amount of organisations really sort of springing up. So super interesting to see what happens next. I was going to say interesting to see them obviously going in quite hard to get consumers with with a great offer of two point fifteen percent. Yeah, I, I have no sort of context whether that's a good rate in Australia, but it's damn sure better than here. So <laughs> it's a lot better than the banks. I think that's the main thing. Mm. So either the banks have been, you know, screwing the pooch, so to speak. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that or not. Um, but you you very much are. Yeah, I don't that, know what that, that means, but you just said it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I have to look that up to make sure it meant what I think it did. But it's similar to when, the, the I guess, the challenge in neobanks came out here as well. I mean, FX fees was the obvious, mm -hmm. the obvious gap to close. So have the big four Aussie banks been taking more than they, or giving nothing back? Uh, is that the gap which is here? Or is this a, 
a war of attrition that will start now between the various different neobanks who are going there. Everyone's going to have to level up their game, and it's going to come down to who's got the biggest war chest. We mm. are seeing people focus on different things. So 86400 have looked at already getting mm. towards mortgages, and um, obviously given the, the background there, they've got with um, with Atom, and then before that Metro, there's, there's sort of some founder history there of, of that kind of model, watching that one play out. This one feels almost like a Marcus play, um, in yeah. that it's, it's mm-hmm. rate-driven, um, and it's really there to um, attract deposits. I don't know... Uh, from an experience standpoint, therefore, is is that going to be the focus? Is it going to make a difference to customers' everyday lives, or is it just a great rate? I worry when I see just a great rate that uh, where the focus is and, and what the intent is. Yeah, I I totally agree with that, and I think it if you're if you're um, really focused about it and you understand what you're doing, that's fine. If you if you want to go and raise billions of, of pounds or dollars of deposits, a a headline-grabbing rate is the way to do that. But then you've got to do something interesting on the other side of the balance sheet. You've got to have a way, you know, like Oak North or some of these other challenges, to deploy them into, into lending products that are differentiated. Because as soon as someone else offers a higher rate, the, the deposits flow elsewhere. Um, and That's fine if that is your business model. But if you're trying to build customer relationships, build, you know, and as we are at Monzo, trying to be the sort of financial hub or storefront, that kind of day-to-day interaction is key rather than a, you know, someone like, I put money in Marcus, but I open my Marcus. Did they even have an app? I don't even know. No, um, no it wasn't. It was a pure, no purely web-based just a website, yeah. that, that sort of, I have zero interaction with them. You know, I put money in there, I get a great interest rate, but they have, I have, feel like I have no relationship with them, which is fine if the business model supports that. But I think you can kind of get confused between headline-grabbing rates to drive deposits versus building customer relationships. it comes down to what are you trying to achieve? Yep. Like, what's mm-hmm. the ultimate mission and, and vision for that organization? But uh, as you say, Up and Zinja, um, David, are, are looking potentially at more consumer brands and solving more of the everyday spend problems and, and some of the rates and fees against some of the big banks. So very, actually not dissimilar to where the UK was sort of four years ago in that uh, lots of different organizations with lots of different perspectives of how to attack the market. And that's a good thing for the consumer, hopefully. Yeah, totally. It's surprising we've not seen as much of this in Canada yet. I, I, I sort of keep looking at that market. Mm. I mean, the Canadian market, the regulator did the same move as the Australian market, which was basically made it harder to get in since 08. Right. And they haven't really um, sort of pulled back on that. Uh, I think there's two licenses been issued in the last 20 years over there. Wow. Um, and actually, they've been to non the two new licenses were non-banking organizations. One of them was an MNO. I think one of them was like a partnership between a big tech company and an exi- existing mm. FS company. So I think at the point where they start relaxing a little bit, they could do because there is, you know, thousands of community banks up there, you know, really interesting organizations trying to do really interesting things. But fundamentally, they are analog banks. Mm. You know, they, they very much are based on a, a bank with three branches in a very small area that actually works in a, a very sort of old-fashioned sense, you know. Um, but I think it, I think you'll catch up. I think your point is, is is valid where it's like the wave of what digital banking actually is is sort of touching on all shores now, which yeah. is pretty exciting. It's, it's it just amazing to see how different geographies and different regulators are 
taking up the mantle and doing similar but different things and how the impact of that actually has on the market. Uh, yeah. I like that point as well because Canada does bear some similarities to Australia and the UK in that concentrated banking market piece. But it, as of yet, it doesn't appear that the regulator has shown any desire to move forward on that. But maybe maybe that's just been a case of not knowing how to and, and maybe there's a conversation to be had there between them um, and the likes of the FCA and others who are, I think, starting to look to share the learnings of, of what happened with fintech in the UK. I wonder if there's a precedent for that too, that they will look at the, not just the regulators from other countries, but you'll look at the successful, well, not really startups anymore. I mean, Revolut also launched in Australia this year, right? So they're going slow, but it's it's going to be interesting to see where, well, the likes of Tom's company end up in the next five years. Mm-hmm. Right. People are looking globally. Slowly colonizing Mars, so I think Mars will be on the agenda very shortly. <laughs> Mars Bank. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. It, well, have a chat with Elon, he'll get you there, surely, right? Indeed. <laughs> if you've got to visit the branch, it's going to be fun. Yeah. All right. Next up, we have a story over on FinTech Futures, and this is something that probably isn't in the, uh, the, the sort of benefit of consumers, is three more payday lenders fold. And maybe this is just the sign of the times to a certain degree. So My Money Partner and Swift Sterling entered into administration this week. Um, Piggy Bank also went bust a week ago as well. I've never heard of all three of these organizations, but they sound like they um, definitely are aiming in a certain space, aren't they, which is is kind of worrying. So um, their customers will be treated as unsecured creditors, which I'm not entirely sure is particularly positive from their perspective because it will start to be treated as default pretty quickly, I guess, in terms of them recovering all of the amounts, which is kind of interesting. Uh, so this, that's actually going to be potentially affecting any level of compensation that they might have got from these organizations disappearing. So in July, in July uh, Piggy Bank was banned from issuing any further loans, which is never a good sign, while MMP has ceased taking applications in any way, shape or form. The bankruptcies come as regulators get much stricter on affordability checks and compliance, which probably just seems like a bloody good idea, really, doesn't it? You know, make sure there's some sort of form of check before you're giving away sort of quite vulnerable people money. There was a real push in a few years ago to essentially um, sort of uh, really challenge the business model of payday lenders and set, sort of set some caps after a real public backlash. And, and what you're seeing is a lot of this coming out of the wash in that uh, ultra high risk rent, ultra high risk lending uh, to vulnerable sectors of society um, with with insane interest rates that, that became predatory was not a sustainable business model unless you had those ultra high interest rates. Um, the, the unfortunate thing is whilst we might be tempted to, as you say, David, cheer this, um, I think it was the FCA chief of the Consumer Finance Organization, Jason Wassell, there's a quote here, uh, some may cheer the exit of another lender, but it's not quite the cause for celebration for many families who rely on borrowing at this time of year. So um, there's, it's just, it's coming out in the wash and uh, there's real social problems here. Mm. I think, it, go on after you. I was going to say, I, I think for me, the, the fear is where do those people go now? Mm, yeah. And, you know, is that the doorstep lender? Is that the, the loan sharks of, of, I was going to say, of the past? They're probably not of the past. Um, they're probably out of the frying pan into the fire. And uh, it, it all comes back to people want to borrow money, people understanding the need to borrow money and, and being able to borrow it in a, in a sensible way, in a way where they understand what they're getting into and can, and can manage that credit. It's, uh, it, Go Henry obviously is, finds uh, hugely important teaching young people to navigate financial um, prowess whilst whilst they're young so that when they hit 18 and they they 
go out there and suddenly all of this credit is available to them, they at least have some idea of what they're doing. Mm. I, I think that's that's the thing. It's I, my, my worry with, I mean, payday lending as an entirety is a sort of a, a drug that if you have to get on it, it's very difficult to get off. Um, but actually education earlier on actually gets you to a point where you will make better decisions around those things. But even then, I guess, to your point, Simon, there's, there's always a need for a safety net somewhere. Um, but it's it's um, I think it's interesting that the the, um, the FCA come out to make that type of statement though because yeah. it, it feels um, I don't know it feels like they're, nobody they're not doing anything to basically create an alternative which is really what's required at this stage which is if a lot of people were seeing that as the way out for uh, paying for Christmas then I think to your point it's like I mean that's that's not the way to pay for Christmas, you know, like getting into like crazy amounts of debt for, you know, uh, you know, one day a year just doesn't seem like the right thing to really be doing. No, it's maybe redefine Christmas. It doesn't have to be hugely mm. expensive gifts. Very true. And, no, and, sorry, go on. Sorry, Tom. Um, also, I've noticed in, in the last few months, really, at, um, at lots of checkout baskets, yes, I shop a lot online, um, there's instant credit available, and that's becoming more and more popular. Klarna is one of the big names in, in that area, and it's instant credit, pay in 30 days. All digital, all online, incredibly easy to sign up, incredibly tempting if you haven't quite got enough and you've filled your shopping basket. Okay. Yeah, I think I, I agree as well. I I think there is, has been... There have no doubt been predatory practices and inappropriate lending. But I think it's so easy to be moralistic about all of it and ignore the reality that if you are someone with poor credit history or no credit history or no credit file whatsoever and something happens, your car breaks down that you need to use to get to work or your boiler breaks and the choices borrow at high rates or let your family go without heating it's it's sort of it's easy for us here to to be moralistic about how that's you know it's predatory and blah 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 but i don't know i think there are people who use who value these services and the only way to lend to someone with very poor credit history is to charge a higher interest rate because it is likely that many of them won't pay it back and so how do you cover that cost of risk mm. or you'd be really moralistic and paternalistic and say no you just you don't afford you, excuse me you don't deserve to have a the car to get to work or the boiler to to keep your family warm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very very tricky area. I mean, I think the um, the Church of England looked into this. You know, they really want to help. We really want to provide a a solution to to lend to low credit score families, and they pull back because the answer is you charge high interest rates, and that is not a that is not a, a sort of PR story they wanted to embrace. So. Mm. I mean, I, I guess the difficulty here is that um, actually we've seen, you know, to the earlier story, we've seen action in overdrafts, which is essentially lending just a small amount. It absolutely time. is lending. So actually in the in the sense of actually for uh, capping out one fee for, you know, a certain amount of money, albeit smaller, certain action is being taken, whereas actually there isn't uh, probably strong enough protection for, as you say, quite vulnerable people who probably have so uh, little alternatives to to sort of seek that money. And I think that's usually the piece that people kind of rile against is, uh, you know, um, percentages that are, and APRs that are like telephone numbers that are being sort of charged to people for for the rates that are in, in those things. So I think it, I, it's a really difficult 
problem to solve because yeah. lending is risk, and therefore, if it's more risky, it should be more expensive. And I, you know, idealistically, we'd love everybody to be really, really sort of included. But it's actually figuring out the way to do that without it being a tax on companies to provide that service. Um, but there's got to be a way, and I think it's. I think to what we've been discussing here is like I'm I'm a I'm I'm reasonably old fashioned. It's like don't spend money you don't have. Like, and that for me is like a you know bred into me from my from my mum and dad and like education. So it's like how do you how do you get that type of mentality into people where actually all of the pressures of like what we have to buy our children and all the plastic things that I will no doubt be buying my children, um, but actually being in a situation where you don't need to do those things, that's not how you have a good Christmas. Um, I'm going to get off my soapbox. Uh, my groups. father has banned Christmas present this year, so <laughs> no problem for us. <laughs> one one lump of coal. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> That's very Scroogey. It's going to be a very quiet day, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it is. But I think essentially what we're saying, though, is that as long as it's not wanton consumerism that is driving people, mm. then it's probably okay to still try and support these. So is there a mechanism under which you can still say, well, it's money, but it's money that has a restricted usage? I think, actually, weirdly, Go Henry, you kind of have this already in play. <laughs> Uh, if you were paying out these on a on a prepaid card, for example, you can limit the merchant category code. Yeah. So you could say it actually can only be used in these shops, i.e., supermarkets for food, uh, not in you know a retailer for new clothing. Well, maybe that's a bad example, but well, so there was um, the HMRC did look at doing this around um, social welfare and the distribution of benefits, but of course there was a PR backlash and, and a public backlash because it becomes extremely paternalistic. Yep. Mm-hmm. Not only in that you are and are not allowed to do that and the, the removal of your potential civil civil liberties around that, but the, the question of uh, like how are you actually going to then get better at managing your own money yourself if, if I'm, I'm putting these restrictions in your place versus sort of allowing you to put the restrictions in place yourself and, and encouraging you to, to use the deposit friction. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. And so I think I'm um, Starling and ourselves put in, in a, a gambling block a couple of years ago now that all of the big banks have copied. And that is a an opt-in feature for customers. We're um, trialing now a merchant block. So you, as a customer, you can say, I don't want to, whether it's McDonald's or it's you know, a bookmaker or or um, you know, online shopping, you can you can sort of exclude yourself if you want to. And I think there is a, a parallel with, with debt. It's something I, I keep talking about because I, I hope someone does it, and potentially us, that if you are someone with spiraling problem debt, you, you often have loans with multiple different providers. Um, I think there is a way, and there definitely is a way, for someone to, first of all, consolidate all of those different debts into a single uh, a loan, a consolidation loan they pay back over five or ten years, um, but at the same time opt into a borrowing block to put a marker on their credit file with all the credit reference agencies that says, don't lend to me. Mm. So I'm, this is it. I'm, I've, you know, I've no, more, no more borrowing. I'm going to consolidate everything, and I will not take more debt elsewhere in order to get back on the kind of path to, to solvency, effectively. I think that would be a really, really positive step for, for people with, get, with, um, with borrowing problems. Yeah, and I think it's those types of indicators where it's a sign of intent. Yeah, actually, if you can, I mean, lots of getting out of debt, like you say, is mentality. It's like actually, if, if there's a sign of intent that they're actually trying to address the problem, you will probably, from a risk perspective, deal with it in a completely different way. Um, but it, I mean, I don't think we're going to solve this one uh, in the next five minutes, are we? So uh, <laughs> we probably should move on at this stage, right? All right. So and finally, we have a story that is over on Finextra, which is Mastercard launches mobile gift card. So this is Builders Europe's first ever 
fully digital gift card. The uh, select digital gift card arrives just in time for the holidays. Uh, more of that consumerism we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the card can be sent by email, text, uh, or all sorts of different messaging apps. Uh, recipients can then put it in their digital wallet and use it as if it was just a normal card in, a, in store. Uh, retail partners include John Lewis, Topshop, Waterstones, Argos, and many, many more. Um, I don't actually ever go into the high street, so like basically if it doesn't exist in Amazon, I don't buy it. But um, I mean... I don't really understand this, if I'm honest with you. Can somebody explain this to me? So is this a, like a new thing? Because it's being billed as the first ever, but it's the first ever thing that I actually I'm thought sure existed I've already. I'm sure I've seen gift cards online before, but it's, it's I think it, my guess is, and it's very unclear from the Finextra piece or, or the press release, is they've um, they've partnered with a company called Clever Cards, um, and Clever Cards uh, claim to have effectively created a digital £50 note that can instantly be sent and spent between parties electronically across borders. But you then have to put these inside of um, what is only described as a digital wallet. That is an extremely vague term. So what I have to download new software to get this thing, and then I have to use that software when I'm going to check out. Um, then it just feels like there's a lot of friction involved in the process. Sort of, uh, it would be really nice if there was a way to to sort of come around that. I mean, is it is it really a digital fifty pound? Like, can can you put it out to get like a real fifty pound, or is it like it just? This seems like a very strange thing for Mastercard to be associated it's with restricted certain out. merchants. Isn't it? Yeah. So the, mm. no, the idea is, you know, like, you go get a, a Netflix gift card or an Amazon gift card or a voucher or those sorts of things or a John Lewis voucher. It, it's one of those little gift cards, but that typically would be physical. Um, and you around Christmas time, you tend to give those to people as presents, especially if you don't know what to get them. Um, it's like, here's something for you to spend. Go spend it at M&S. Go spend it at Topshop. Go spend it at Amazon. And you figure out what you want to get. Yeah, <laughs> and there is a great secondary market in those. I don't know how many teenagers you know, but, yeah. oh, my goodness, after Christmas, everybody trading. I don't like Zara, but I like H&M. Can, can we trade? Yeah. Well, well and, the, and the great thing about those from a merchant's perspective is like, there's uh, breakage. yeah breakage in that market so like people don't generally spend all of them I think I've still got I mean I buy everything at Amazon and I've still got Amazon vouchers sat on my desk that I haven't <laughs> used for a year you know mm. so I mean like what is this I just uh, I'm still struggling to we, understand where the innovation is we, we've seen it before about six years ago in China the whole Chinese New Year red packet the Ang Bao you gave people money and obviously culturally there you can give cash uh in Europe, let's say, especially in the UK, I think it's seen as maybe crass to just give someone cash. I'm a terrible gifter, so gift cards are my go-to mm-hmm. last minute. I've got something physical okay, to give someone. this is a safe space. You can admit these things. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this isn't going public, right? Yeah, no, okay, no, good. nobody will hear it. Perfect. Just Perfect. Uh, but then I want to actually at least give someone a card under the tree. So the consumer in me says, well, this doesn't actually satisfy my goal of being able to at least give someone something physical. Mm-hmm. Okay. I have to say, we a few months ago, we launched a, a feature called Gift Links, which in a way does exactly this. You can you can send out gift links to friends and family, you know, the, the grandmother who's saying, what does Billy want for Christmas? And uh, they can gift money straight into the GoHenry account along with a virtual gift card, along with a little message. And the child can also send back a, a thank you. But um, and that of course can then be it's part of their Go Henry account and it can be used at any retailer 
um, that accepts the guard. It's interesting they've got so many retailers already signed up. What I'm surprised mm. by is that it's not some sort of a flux-like integration whereby just taking the receipt, I can automatically you know, kind of reconcile it against my account or that they haven't worked with all of the challenge banks or Plaid or somebody to make this a merchant category code thing. Like imagine if I could just use the service I already use today to send my friends money to send them a gift card that they could only spend at that store. That's pretty cool. This thing just feels like now I have to download some new software and introduce new friction in order to do the thing that I could do with a physical piece of card that I can give to you or mail to you that actually is pretty low, is lower friction by comparison. Wait, weren't you getting all excited about cryptocurrency like four years ago? Like, isn't isn't <laughs> dude? I still am. All right. <laughs> all right. And on isn't that note, some kind of podcast about this. <laughs> yeah, Blockchain Insider is available on iTunes now. That was, that, that was a that was a real dig to leave the year, wasn't it? I yeah, know, I, I, I feel so hurt. You I screwed know. you. I'm very sorry. <laughs> all right. On that note, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out a little bit more about you, Bradley? About myself personally or the company? I mean, really, whatever you want All to share at this point. What are the gifts other than gift cards are you buying people? Don't, actually, don't spoil it. Where well, can people find say, out about, more about you? Christmas for my, uh, my nieces and nephews. So. Yeah, I'm sure they're listeners. Well, mm. uh, the company is, is called checkout.com, so it gives you a clue as to where you can find more information about us. Uh, myself, obviously, on LinkedIn. Very good. Louise? GoHenry.com and uh, any of our social accounts at, at GoHenry. Very good. Tom? Uh, Monzo.com or Monzo on all good app stores. All good app stores. <laughs> so, sounds like there's a disc there. Yeah, there are a couple of bad ones we're not on. Fair enough. All right, Simon, how about you? Uh, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or just email me directly, Simon at 11fs.com. And as for me, you can find me on at David Brewer on Twitter. What do you think of this week's stories? Uh, let us know over on, I mean, all good social media platforms. I don't know if there's any bad ones. I think we're probably Loads. on the bad ones as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just Especially search for us on Fintech Insiders or email us over on podcast at 11fs.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter. You can find out more about that over on 11fs.com forward slash newsletter. Thanks very much for listening this year, guys. Goodbye. Goodbye.